So what does it mean in that sense to hold someone accountable from a retributionist point of view? To cause them pain. We're talking about the purpose of punishment in class one morning. And how do you justify causing them pain? Because they cause somebody else pain. The way I like to think of it is if your goal is to punish someone, then yes, retribution is, is the way to go. If your goal is to cause harm for someone who caused harm, then yes. But if your goal is to create whole communities, uh, healthy societies, um, to um, correct people, then retribution is not the way to go. But if your singular goal is to cause harm to someone who caused harm, then yes, retribution makes sense. But retribution is very common. It's very common. It's centuries old. And it hasn't worked. <laughs> I mean, it, even on a fundamental level, you look at the street culture. The street culture is defined by retribution, and nothing's changed. Like, for however long the street, whether it's in American street culture, whether it's in other country street culture, if I do something to him, kill him, his people naturally from that culture want to come back and kill me or kill somebody associated with me. And all this does is creates a continuous cycle. It's never changed anything. So what is the point? So what is the point of punishment? What purpose do we serve by sending someone to prison? One common answer is this, to get retribution for criminal wrongs. As Cameron and Anthony just explained, retribution is a means by which the scales of justice are arguably rebalanced after a crime. If I take advantage of another person by, say, robbing them, then society arguably has a right to take something from me in response, like forcing me to go to prison. But even if you think retribution justifies punishment— you still have to ask how much punishment is enough. And there's no better society to ask that question about than the United States, which incarcerates more people than any society in history. Beginning in the 1980s, our prison systems expanded exponentially, so that now more than two million Americans sit behind bars. As we've seen in this series, some people use their time inside to reevaluate themselves, to assess the damage they've done, and to work toward becoming better people. In short, they are trying to make amends. But if we want as many wrongdoers as possible to make amends in this way, how likely is that in our current system of punishment? Is our love affair with lengthy incarceration really the best means to heal the wounds caused by crime? This is Making Amends. I'm Steve Herbert. I used a rare degree of access to the Oregon State Penitentiary to get to know Cameron, Anthony, and many of their peers. In this series, we are exploring how many prisoners reckon with the past and how they search for a way to atone. In this episode, we want to consider how the rise of mass incarceration impacts life on the inside and to begin to assess just what we get for our investment in prisons. If greater justice is our goal, is stuffing as many people as possible into prison cells the best means to accomplish that? Episode 7. It does let us off the hook. What's the best argument you can make for your own punishment? For me being in prison? Yeah. This is Cameron. Uh, so I was uh, 
19 years old, uh, addicted to heroin and sticking pistols in people's faces. You cannot have that in society. <laughs> I had to be removed, right? There was no way you could just, oh, he's just a kid, let him, you know. Right. I, I absolutely needed to be re removed from society. But um, now you have to ask the question, what do you do with me when I'm removed from society? Do you punish me and warehouse me and um, hope that, you know, I change? Or do you try to facilitate rehabilitation and transformation? And that's, that's where I think the, the different correctional models come into place is that, um, you know, I see so many of my peers warehoused and punished, and then they come out not only not change, but worse. You know, they didn't, they didn't transform into a better person. They transformed into a worse person. And, um, you know, even uh, guys come in drug addicted, they leave um, with new addictions and, and uh, more violent. They, they came in, you know, a, a skinny, scared drug addict and came out a giant, <laughs> not scared of anything drug addict. You know? Right. So retribution leads to warehousing. Yes, absolutely. And you're suggesting that in a warehouse system, people are, most people are going to get worse or certainly not going to change for the better. Yeah. There's a spectrum. There's a bell curve of people. And on the far end, there's people that are going to change no matter what. I think I'm in that that group and then on the other end there's the lifelong criminals that you can give them every opportunity every chance and they will just continue in criminality but then there's the vast majority of people who um are capable of change but it has to be facilitated they need to be encouraged along the way but it's the vast majority of people that um get lost in the warehousing system that you know they're they have hope for redemption but it's lost when they're sitting in a cell watching TV for, you know, 14 hours a day. Hope, you mean they have the possibility or they have the internal desire for redemption? I think both. I think everyone has the, the internal desire for redemption, but, um, you know, to go down that path is painful. And if you're walking it alone, you may not take it. But if it can be facilitated and you can be encouraged along the way, then it's much more likely to take place. One key question we can ask about our prison system is what can make personal change more likely to take place? As we've seen, that change requires that a person take ownership of their past mistakes. That's the first step on the journey toward making amends. Ideally, that assumption of responsibility would happen as early in the justice process as possible. But when you're being charged by the state for a crime and you are staring at a potentially very long sentence, you might think twice about owning up to your guilt. In my personal experience, I was entertaining the fact of, all right, taking accountability from the start, admitting my faults, and said, okay, I did do such and such and such. But then from the very beginning, it was brought to my attention that if I do that, I'm looking at the prospect of life in prison. So the hell with the truth, you know, I'm just gonna not be truthful, so to speak. I mean, like they cannot, it's like the system forced my hands not to take accountability for my actions because the consequences are so severe. So 
from day one you're encouraged to plead not guilty and you come to believe that you're not guilty and you just play the game like that. Let them prove that you're guilty. Our criminal justice process is adversarial. A criminal charge is defined as the state versus the alleged offender. So, if you're the defendant, you are opposed by the state and all of its resources. You are encouraged to deny guilt. And for many people, over the duration of you sitting in county jail, fighting your case, you come to believe that you're actually not guilty. You know, and it's up to them to prove it. At the time that my incident happened, I was only in the States for 14 months. Very unfamiliar with the criminal justice system, very unfamiliar with a lot of aspects government-wise. And when I received my indictment, and it's Mahmoud Mustafa versus the state of Oregon, I was like, I'm doomed. <laughs> what would I possibly have to fight the state of Oregon? Fighting the state is likely a very daunting prospect, but that's especially true when you're facing a sentence of considerable length. And long sentences are now common in the United States. I think that just norms began to shift where it began to feel like prison and jail were the right answer to a lot of complicated social problems. This is Catherine Beckett, my colleague at the University of Washington, Seattle. So more people started being sentenced to some form of confinement, whereas before they might have gotten probation or community service or a fine. But then the big shifts really started in the 1980s with sentencing reform, and the overall drift was to increase the penalties that are imposed on people convicted of crimes. And this was for all types of offenses, so not just drug offenses, but also property and especially violent crimes. So what kind of shifts more specifically are you referencing there? They take many forms, but I think the most common were things like uh, three strikes and other mandatory minimum sentencing laws, but then also just a just gradual ratcheting up of what seemed like the right number of years for burglary or for assault. Our increased incarceration came from shifts in sentencing policy. Legislatures across the United States changed their laws to ensure that convicted criminals went to prison and that they stayed there for a long time. These new laws lessened the power judges used to have to determine someone's sentence. The sentence has now been pretty much predetermined. So if you confess quickly to a crime, you can be staring at a lot of prison time. For this reason, you might think twice about offering up the truth right away. I was always taught, tell the truth, you know what I mean, and we'll get through whatever consequences, yada, yada, yada. So that was always in my mind. So when I hit the county and I'm going through my trial and dealing with my attorneys and everything else, I quickly found out that the truth isn't respected. No one cares about the truth. The DA just has his theory of what happens. They want to paint their picture. My attorney has his theory of what happened. He wants to paint his picture. And I'm stuck in the middle like, well, dad told me to be honest, but I see that stuff don't really matter. And so I'm like right with my attorney and whatnot. And that process like made me develop my own story of what took place. And I embraced that. And my thought was, well, if you're selling, if you're selling drugs or whatnot, you either get killed or you go to prison. That's it, that easy. I think that's a key point because 
taking responsibility while you're going through that, you you actually punish for it. It's a consequence. Exactly. So if I if I'm willing to stand up, if I even I, if even if I had the capacity back then to stand up and be like, you know what, this is what I did, it's wrong. I get punished for that because the state turns around and say, we got you. Even if you feel this guilt, this this um, I want to empathize with this this victim. I can't tell the truth. The very system, the way that the structure is, prevents us, even when we want to, because the legal process tells us it, you can't do it. Once you enter the system and you're being prosecuted and everything else, you keep certain information to yourself and let the courts and DA figure it out. Because if you just open your mouth and tell them exactly what happened, then you pretty much telling on yourself. But at the same time, you still have to deal with that truth inside, if that makes sense. Telling the truth is a leap of faith. But like when you first, when I first got arrested, they, your attorney tells you to say not guilty. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm, I'm definitely guilty. Why would I say I'm not guilty? I'm, I'm lying, you know? But that's, that's just how this system works. It's the first thing you're told to say, not guilty. So for others of you, was it scary to tell the truth? Definitely terrifying to tell the truth. It's terrifying in this context of the system because the consequences are in some cases grave. So like, how do you tell the truth when you're going up against a system that you believe is not going to honor that truth? Because to tell the truth is to box you into a legal situation that you're trying to actually get out of. It shouldn't matter if you're Internally, if you're being honest with yourself, that acceptance of that truth is what should carry you through, right? Because the outcome should really matter. Because if you're trying to be honest with yourself, be in peace with yourself, then that's what's carrying you through, I guess. You know what I mean? Because if you're, if, you're, if you're sincere about it, you wouldn't care about the outcomes. You wouldn't care about the time because the purpose is to be internally true with yourself. For Terrence, his inability to be truthful in the criminal process delayed his taking accountability for his wrongs. That did not occur until later. You'll recall that Terrence rationalized his crime as a natural consequence of his victim choosing to sell drugs. And so I embraced that thought and I carried that thought throughout the whole trial. Then when I got here, I was still embracing it and everything else. And it wasn't until I ran across a few older dudes and a few counselors and we kind of get get to talking a little bit, and that's the story that I would explain. Well, if you're in this, if you're in this lifestyle, that's what happens. Period. There's nothing to say about it. And everyone I explained that to, they all looked at me like you're an idiot. You know what I mean? That's not. No, you can't think like that. That's not. That's not how life works. And they would just look at me like I'm just, like, you're not even thinking. You're not even using your brain. And. Um, it was some of these classes and everything else that made me think like, okay, well, Terrence, you can't be thinking like that. That's not, that's not reality. That's not gonna help you grow. That's gonna keep you stuck. Yeah, the, the system and everything else, they didn't really wanna hear the truth of what took place. I'm pretty sure his family does, you know what I mean? But they didn't wanna hear it or whatnot, so you know what the truth is. So you have a foundation, you're gonna find someone to work from that.
So our adversarial system and our lengthy prison sentences arguably work together to provide powerful reasons not to tell the truth. A convicted criminal might therefore find it easy to avoid an honest look at their mistakes and thus to avoid genuine accountability. Of course, if they are sentenced to a long prison term, then perhaps that's an acceptable form of accountability. But is that the best way to hold someone accountable? If our prisons are simply warehousing people, is that justice? There's a bunch of us in here. We don't have to take responsibility for our actions or whatnot because we're not forced to, to look at it, to look at them. We're not forced to, to deal with them. So therefore, we can spend all the time that we want on a yard just messing around or just not thinking about it because we're not forced to think about it. So it's like, yeah, you do something, now you're stuck in prison. All right, well, that's the end of it. No longer are we thinking about, well, why are we here? I mean, we see so many, so many different young dudes come in and go out and leave and come back and leave and come back. It's like, have you ever really sat down and thought about what it is that you're doing to keep you coming back? And they're like, no, well, maybe you should start thinking about that because this is not working. Any source of transformation or paradigm shift or change in mentality should not by any stretch of imagination be attributed to how the system is designed. Any person who thrives, accomplishes something, becomes something, helps someone, is doing that in spite of the structure of the incarceration system. My own personal example, right? I was 15 years old, gave me 25 to life. Let's just say you take me out of society for 25 years at, a, at 15 years old, right? Without it, nothing being facilitated, just retribution. What do I learn? I get out of prison at 40 years old, and who have I become without something being facilitated to change and to instill something in me? I've become worse. Not saying now, because I've taken initiatives on my own to change and mature and grow as a man. But without some facilitation, and I get out at 40 years old from 15 in prison, how do I function in society? Like, so the whole concept, just give them a timeout, it doesn't make sense. Like, as an adult, I've never lived free in society. So if there wasn't facilitation and personal initiative that was intentional on my behalf, getting out of here, I would be a worse man than I was a 15-year-old child. It doesn't, like I said, it doesn't make sense without adding into the pot facilitation and real reconciliation with self and community and, and growth. And you take away programs and you take away the ability to get a trade or anything like that. I just go out there and probably rob somebody. Could, what do I do? In fact, if you think about it, perhaps our prisons work largely to allow people to avoid being held accountable. I think it does let us off the hook. It, it lets us off the hook because uh, my case is a prime example. Like I've, sitting down with the, with the victim's family will humanize my actions, mm -hmm. right? Versus just paperwork, you know? So it's like, there's no one that I have to really, I don't have to worry about 
bringing up the individual's name. I don't have to make the individual whose life I took realistic anymore. I can just say the case is the case and this paperwork is just my paperwork. So he's paperwork. Versus if he was actually, it just if I was faced with a situation to where I have to acknowledge it. So like that's one of the things that I'm doing with my own transformation is trying to actually say his name. To acknowledge that you didn't, you took a life, you know, like you, you, so like Carlos, this is the individual. I think we get off the hook because we don't have that human response. Like we, we, we're, it's easy for us to just avoid the actual damage that we've done. You're just a cog in a big bureaucratic machine. Exactly. Mm -hmm. In our adversarial system, it's the state against the individual who's been charged with the crime. The interests of the victim are presumably being protected by the state. But if you are facing a prosecutor who's seeking to convict you and see you sentenced to a long prison term, you might not be thinking all that much about the victims that you wronged. You know, it's the state versus Cameron, you know, that the victims know we're in there. And I think that's important to give them a voice because they are the ones that were, were wrong. Their, their needs to be met. But on the offender side, I think it does a lot of good too because uh, just like we were saying, uh, we can't repair the harm if we don't know like what it is. And I think that if I would have had a victim-offender dialogue from that first day, I would have understand the harm I caused the people that I was robbing. You know, I, they would have asked me like, why did you choose me? You know, like what was it, da, da, da. and like, I would have been able to visibly see the karma, the harm I caused and been affected by it and maybe changed sooner, you know, been motivated by that. So if we, if we don't know the harms, then we can't uh, amend them. And as you went through your, the criminal process, you didn't really think about the no, harm? No, not at all. I, like, it's, it's a very adversarial, like, uh, about evidence and trying to, you know, it's a chess game with the state. So if you had heard from the victims earlier in this whole process, you think things would have played out differently? Personally, emotionally, absolutely. Why do you think that's the case? What would have gone on for you emotionally that would have been One, so significant? I mean, for so many years, I didn't see the wrong. I didn't understand the wrong. Uh, like I said, no one got hurt, so I don't know what the big deal is. You know what I mean? I, th I thought it was... Uh, you know, America's obsession with money. I took some money was the problem. But, uh, you know, if I would have understood the emotional toll that I took on um, these people, and I did have victims, I had people that I hurt and I traumatized. If I would have understood that, I would have been more understanding of uh, how I need to make amends for that. That, you know, I, uh, I did a wrong and now I have to make it right. I'm still trying to figure out why hearing their emotional reaction you think would have... Cause would I, have impacted you. What is I, it about hearing that that you think is well, significant? I just would have understood the the harm I caused. They them articulating me, seeing them in front of me, I would have understood that and empathize. Yes. So our punitive and adversarial criminal justice system perhaps does not encourage the level of accountability that we might want. If we hope that wrongdoers will make amends then perhaps our current approach is not ideal. But Cameron seems to be suggesting that there's another way to help prisoners make amends, one that involves closer communication between those who commit crimes 
and those who are their victims. Like when you don't have an opportunity to really sit there and address the real impact of what you did coming from maybe your victim's family or your victims, it's difficult to really get a real understanding of the impact of that decision. You can get it kind of abstractly, vicariously through other stuff, but I think it would make a big difference. Like I killed somebody. If I could sit right across my, from my victim's family at, through some mechanism and really have a conversation, I think that impact would be a lot more deeper than me just kind of abstractly coming to an understanding of what I did. What a more restorative approach to crime might look like. That's next time on Making Amends. Making Amends is written and produced by me, Steve Herbert. Our production crew includes Jesse Beckett-Herbert, Tyler Bonilla, Emma Embleton, and Daniel Gunther. Our website and marketing crew includes Nadra Fredge, Kate Borelli, and Liz Gardner. Music by Jesse Beckett-Herbert and Tony Lefebvre. Our theme song was recorded at the Oregon State Penitentiary with Austin Clark, Chad Hamlin, and Mitch Lewis. Recording assistance at the penitentiary provided by Chad Hamlin. Learn more at our website, makingamendspodcast.com. Please spread the word about this podcast and provide us a rating and a review. See you next time.